Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. Uh, I'm Rabbi Iggy from the Truva Center. Thank you for joining us. We have a guest today. Jessica Lipman. Jessica Lipman is a consultant. She's a coach. She's a writer. She's the founder of the mindfulness. Um, so that means that she's a, a certified, unified mindfulness coach. We'll talk a little bit about that. She is also the uh, one of the co-founders, um, right, of Recovery Dharma. What, what is Recovery Dharma, Jess? So Recovery Dharma is a nonprofit and peer-led program using Buddhist practices and principles to heal the suffering of addiction. That's, uh, that's very cool. We'll talk a little bit about that yeah. as well uh, through. What I'm excited about um, it today, the talk today, is again, as in always with the podcast, sort of kind of marrying things that some people might think don't really go with each other, or at least sort of make more explicit the ways that sort of things do go with each other, uh, mindfulness, uh, meditation, uh, I'd say I'll add discipline, Judaism, recovery, um, and some Buddhism as well. Some things that sort of seem maybe a little um, sort of different regions of the world, different parts of our psyche, but they kind of go together. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And to speak with somebody who is an expert in mindfulness and in meditation um, is really, really exciting. Because I think a lot of people just don't know what mindfulness, mindfulness is or how to do meditation. Right. So like they don't know how to start. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know what's what success right, in it. Um, so, mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about mindfulness. Um, what does mindfulness mean for you? What, what is mindfulness? How would you describe it? Yeah. So actually, uh, in the unified mindfulness system, we do have multiple definitions. And the system is designed by Shinzen Young and and um, his longtime student, Juliana Ray. And basically, long story short, is it it's a multi-part definition. So I'll share that. Uh, mindfulness is an awareness. That's one way to understand it. And that's the way uh, I've learned to understand it using unified mindfulness. And so it's just an awareness. Of, it's a focus on the present time experience. And then it's also a set of skills. So it's a set of three attentional skills all working together and that's concentration power sensory clarity and equanimity and essentially how we pay attention can influence how we perceive and behave and so um, concentration is just like the ability to put your full attention and focus on one object that you deem important in that moment sensory clarity is all about discerning what is happening in the in the different sense gates, which are uh, see, hear, and feel, and just being able to know like what is what's happening in your present time experience, and that might mean like oh, I'm feeling anxiety in my body, or thinking is happening. That's that's indicative of sensory clarity, and then equanimity is essentially it's an ability to be with what's actually happening in the present moment without pushing it away or pulling more of it in. I oftentimes um, liken it to being a steady ship at sea. 
you you are you are the ship and if the sea is flat the it's a calm day the sun is out your ship is afloat and when the waves come in when those 10 foot waves hit and there's a storm coming your ship still stays afloat and that that is essentially what equanimity is and the last piece of mindfulness i would say is it's a practice and a path so it's it's a practice that's made up of uh, the set of techniques that cultivate concentration, clarity, and equanimity. And then it's a process of applying mindfulness and awareness to achieve specific aspects of human happiness. And so the way Shinzen defines um, these important aspects of human happiness is it reduces physical or emotional suffering. It elevates physical or emotional fulfillment it helps you achieve deep self-knowledge. It helps make positive changes in objective behavior. And it helps you develop a spirit of love and service toward others. That's, that's a lot. So I'm saying this a lot, not as a sort of derogatory thing, but like that's, that's a lot to achieve, I think, right? So like for, for me, all of a sudden, I feel like, oh, how did I do on these? Like, oh, how am I on love and compassion? How am I, right? So like, I feel like sometimes uh, that alone can give me some anxiety about like, am I performing mm. well? Um, but, but so, so I like sort of in that sense, the beginning. And I guess my first question about it is, um, do you turn on mindfulness or like does it just like permeate you every day right right like when you st is your mindfulness when you started the same as your mindfulness now do i have to like you know what i mean sort of like okay now i'm turning on mindfulness i'm gonna right feel what i'm feeling see what i'm seeing you know like breathe what all these things or um do you find it sort of affects you in long term? I mean, is it more of a discipline or is it like a state you, you're trying to achieve almost like going into a room or somewhere? It can be both. So for me, I've over time of just practicing for 15 years and at a regularity, it's not like I practice every day. There's days where I practice daily and then I go weeks or months without a formal practice. So I fluctuate or I have historically and, but I still have developed the mileage. So I still experience mindfulness and the byproducts of it in my moments, even if I'm not doing a formal practice, if that makes sense. And the other side is mindfulness levels, like the concentration, clarity and equanimity can rise and fall in, in degrees of effectiveness or, um, or strength. So some days my concentration levels are high and some days they're low. Some days equanimity is high and some days are low. The more I practice the mindfulness techniques, the more I cultivate those skills and experience them in my daily life, the less I practice, then the less I experience those skills. But essentially you can turn mindfulness on in any given moment because it's just, it's a way of paying attention to the world and to your inner experience. That's all it is. So we are practicing something in every moment, whether we're practicing concentration, clarity, and equanimity, or we're practicing aversion, distraction, craving. We are taking an action with our attention, and that that's in every single moment of our days. 
I, I, I'm encouraged by this. I, you know, I, what I'm hearing in it is, and I like that. Um, for me, a lot of the times I, I use the metaphor of a spiritual bank account, right? Sort of that we all have a spiritual bank account, or we all should have a spiritual bank account, um, and we have to put spiritual money, spiritual coin into it. So that when we have to sort of draw large checks from our spiritual bank account, right, um, right, loss of a friend, loss of a parent, heartache, uh, loss of a job, or like now pandemic, right, of isolation, we have enough coin in that bank account to to draw and write a check without sort of like bouncing it, right. And I think what you were saying um, that even you, right, as 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 a coach, as a person who is experiencing mindfulness. Uh, and teaching about mindfulness that sort of you can go days, weeks, whatever, without it, because once you sort of start putting it in, right, it, it has value, right? It doesn't, right, it doesn't sort of diminish, mm -hmm. right? Every time you practice, there's more in it. Um, and I like that, right? Because it's, it's always there and you can always go back to it. Right. And just so you know, the way I talk about the way to administer mindfulness is diverse that's the that's the value of unified mindfulness is they provide ways in which you bring the techniques into your daily life so when i say i don't practice every day sometimes that that really just means i'm not formally practicing but i do i have they're called micro hits it's where you put your attention on a technique for zero to ten minutes so i do micro hits all day long of a technique maybe i'm in a conversation and i'm and I'm running loving kindness mantra, which it would be nurture positivity in the background. Or I have a feeling arise while I'm working and it's like sensitive or emotional. And I use the label feel in to fully process and lean into that feeling. And it takes 30 seconds to process. So I'm actually, I am practicing mindfulness in different ways throughout my day, but a formal practice is 10 minutes or, or more of single pointed attention on a on a technique. That's that's what we typically think of when we think of meditation. But there's so many ways to actually practice mindfulness, which is can be differentiated between the two. Right. It's um it's the anti suds in psychology. Do you know do you know suds? So in psychology there is a mm -hmm. subjective units of the stress scale, but basically sort of there's a way to sort of gauge um, how mm -hmm. stressed you are, how anxious you are. Uh, they're called suds, um, and you can suds high and suds low, and in throughout the day or throughout an hour, or whatever. And this sounds like sort of the anti-suds, so sort of like how, what the measures of of uh, of peacefulness, the measure of compassion, the measure of awareness, right? Sort of all these different elements that sort of mindfulness brings to us. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. So how do you, so you know we're we're this is still right? We're still doing this uh, in quarantine isolation. Um, how do you use it um, in times of uncertainty like this? How, how do you incorporate mindfulness or um, pr presumably, right, I'm not going to sort of like lead on like, like an idiot, right? Like presumably, right, sort of mindfulness helps us with our anxiety, right? So, but I guess sort of how, how do you experience it? I guess personally as a coach, um, what would you uh, say is your experience with, uh, mindfulness and easing what we're all going through. Mm. Yeah. So I would say like this time is filled with a lot of unknowns. 
more than ever and we all have access to it and 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 also separately like the human experience is essentially marked by i would say a theme of mystery there's a lot of unknowns that we always have to hold and figure out how to be with it um without letting it overwhelm us or or lead us to take misaligned actions in life in order to deal with the discomfort of mystery i mean that's really we're in a we're steeped right now more than ever in the discomfort of mystery <laughs> and part of what mindfulness offers is this way of understanding the moment that we're in to see more of the nuance more of the complexity that's available to us within uncertainty that mystery doesn't just have to be uncomfortable and it's not exclusively painful there can also be a lot of hope in there there, there can be a lot of potential in the unknown. What's possible beyond this? Like, what can I get excited about in the future? What am I building right now that was not available before this, this big shift that we're collectively in? Those are some perspectives that you can access if you open up into the spaciousness of what uncertainty can really offer us. But what I would say is the problem that a lot of us face is when an uncertain condition arises, maybe it's like, I don't know when I'm going to lose my job or I lost my job. I don't know when I'm going to get a, my next paycheck or where it's going to come from or what's going to happen with like universities and schooling. Like, how is this going to impact me and my kids? These are some unknowns that are coming up. And the real problem that we do face with it is that we have a hard, I think collectively many human beings have a hard time hanging with uncertainty, like just being with that mystery is too much to bear. It can cause debilitation, anxiety, stress, and it's just uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable. Um, and so a lot of people, and I share in this too, I, I, especially as a recovering addict, I used to do this a lot with just being with discomfort. I didn't know how to be with it. So I'd kick in straight to craving or aversion. I need, and with uncertainty, we can see it as like, craving. I crave an answer. I'm scurrying around looking for the solution. I'm looking for some ground to hold me right now. I need to make a decision right now in order to develop some illusion of certainty because I cannot sit in this question mark. And that can lead us to making a lot of misaligned decisions if we don't give the mystery its time to work on us and to unfold as it's meant to. The other side of it is aversion. So I'm going to avoid this thing. I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to procrastinate. I'm going to dissociate. I'm going to watch 10 hours of Netflix. Uh, I'm going to watch whatever that show. I forget. I'm going to binge on Tiger, Tiger all King. the <laughs> ice cream in my fridge. I mean, not, not just, I'm going to eat know, all the ice cream. Saying for a friend. <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm going to eat Domino's. Like there, I said it. I sometimes eat Domino's now. Like there's things that we, we kick into those things. Right. And mindfulness gives us a third option, which is to just be with it. What What is the sensation of uncertainty? And can I be with the actual sense experience as it's happening to see what information it can give me? Right. And that's essentially like the way I've worked with it with myself and clients is the first piece is to, uh, to dissect the sense experience of like, images, auditory, so thinking, sound, and body sensations. 
to dissect them and and bite off smaller chunks to process the the flavor of uncertainty more fully. So instead of being caught inside of it, we we step out of it and we start to look at each of its components and we start to investigate its contours and not so much its content. That is liberation. That's that can give a lot of relief. Hmm. And when we do that kind of work in like a guided meditation or formal practice or even those micro hits that I mentioned, we have a real chance to actually digest uncertainty, lean into it and and develop a new tolerance and resilience to be with mystery, to be with unknowns and really to be with discomfort, because I believe discomfort is the underlying thing. It's the byproduct of uncertainty. It's not the mystery that we don't like. It's the discomfort that is glean that is born out of mystery. Right. I mean, I, I was ta- I'm, I was talking about it in my previous podcast um, that um, that I learned I learned in, in India. Right. So there is no anxiety. Anxiety is us projecting onto the future things that we're afraid of. Right. In that sense, in that sense, mystery, um, and it does make us. Um, feel and do things we never thought we would. I think one of the things that sort of is, is happening to me is that um, this uncertainty, this anxiety is making me sometimes questions, I guess both for good and f- but for bad, question things that I thought I knew, right? And, and that for me is the scary part. Sort of it makes me, so, so on, on, the, on the funny side, you said, you know, Domino's, like, I don't like pizza. I know, please, please don't hate, don't hate me. Don't come at me. I, I don't <laughs> like pizza. I'm sorry, I don't. I'm Belgian. It wasn't a thing I grew up with. Sorry. So, right, so I don't like pizza. Um, much to the dismay of the rest of my uh, very American family. Um, but yesterday or the day before I came, but then I was sort of looking through sort of like food stuff, whatever. And all of a sudden I was like, I should try pizza again. Maybe I like, maybe pizza's cool. Maybe pizza's mm. good. And I remember thinking like, yes, that could very well be. But I also think like, you don't like pizza. I mean, honestly, like you just spent 45 years knowing you don't like pizza. What are you, what is this about you all of a sudden that's thinking like, oh, perhaps like pizza. And and I, I will say that that scared me a little bit because um, yes, it's just pizza. It's just an example, but I feel like it has so many tentacles into sort of um, this grounding me, right? So like sort of sort of taking me away from things that I thought I knew about myself or things that I like or things I don't like. And, and, and in that sense, sort of like um, how to be in that discomfort and, and how strong the whatever you want to call it inside it tries to sort of find some kind of, of grounding is trying to sort of lead us in all sorts of different ways right and I can I can only imagine mm-hmm. if I if I had like really big cravings for like alcohol or drugs or, or other things that some right people in recovery do and, and how quickly that can rear its head right um, and all that right so so how do you and how, oh sorry go ahead what I was going to say is to me, it sounds like you have really high levels of sensory clarity, and which means you you have discernment. You know that that was out of the norm for you to have that inclination. You also have a level of clarity around your attitude toward it. Attitude meaning like maybe that was coming from a flavor of craving or maybe it was coming from a flavor of aversion because wanting pizza is not essentially a bad thing. Wanting pizza to escape could be an indication that something is wrong. And that's that's the power of mindfulness is we get to discern, we get to have clarity. Like 
when when I'm actually having a craving versus when I'm actually having an aligned um, motivation. Like there's, we can want things in life, but if the motivation is misaligned, then it might not feel right. And then it might lead to negative behaviors or a maladaptive relationship with the object. The pizza is not the problem. It's what are you doing with the, what's the pizza doing for well, you? Well, the pizza is the problem. <laughs> Ew, it's disgusting. Like the pizza is the, like, the problem. I'm well, sorry. The, <laughs> the problem in a different way. <laughs> exactly. But... No, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, like, welcome to my head, right? Sort of like one of the reasons I think I am the way I am is because nothing, not, virtually nothing. I think that almost, almost nothing in my life is, um, is not a question in my head. Everything I do starts and ends with questions it's question 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 right sort of like um uh i talk about this sometimes in time with this sort of that uh the scientific method right there's a thesis right there's a uh then a uh antithesis right uh and then there is synthesis right so like that's right so we we, we present we push things against it and then we get to synthesis and in in many ways in judaism but definitely in my head there's yes there's a thesis Right. Um, it's coming up Shavuot next week, uh, sort of like revelation, right? the, the giving of the Torah, giving of wisdom. Then there is the mm. the antithesis. Right. And then for for me, antithesis, 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 antithesis. There, there's no synthesis. In many ways, I believe Judaism, this comes from a book by by, by uh, Jonathan Safran for. Um, um, uh, no, not him. Sorry, I'll say that again. This comes from a book called The Rabbi's Cat, right? There is uh, a a continued sort of antithesis, 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 rather than our need to get to synthesis, right? So I know there's mm. no answer, but the questioning is is important to me, right? But 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 I guess part of the question I think for 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 me and for people who are listening, right? How do you then um, uh, how do you locate that nuance? Right. And the potential uh, that actually lives in the, in the unknown. Right. How, how when I feel the anxiety, I feel it. Right. It's not thing. But how do I then turn it into something that is meaningful for me? Like what would be a good sort of advice to give to people like, OK, when I'm feeling this, when I'm going through this. Right. If, if I know that I'm afraid of the unknown, what do I do? What do I do for the first time? And maybe what do I do for the 20th time? So what I would recommend is uh, one way which dissecting. So the senses would be first, like if you're feeling activated with uncertainty, uh, the first thing to do is notice that, bring awareness to it, and then use that as a cue, as a trigger to go into a mindfulness technique. So now you're moving into mindful awareness. And first you bring your attention to your, your thoughts. So just bringing attention to the here space, which is all the auditory space. And um, it it basically is a category to track inner and outer auditory experiences. So now we're looking at what thinking is arising and we're noticing like its movement where it's located in the body. We're noticing um, the flavor of thoughts. So can I start to get discernment around, is that a fear thought or is that a love thought? And now we're starting to label and categorize that. So labeling it like first here, like I, I, we work in the system using labels. So you would say in your inner dialogue here, and that just means that you're focusing on thinking. And then the second layer, which I've kind of created for this 
this kind of working of uncertainty is let's label the type of thoughts that are arising. And now, now you're starting to notice like maybe there are some uh, fear thoughts, but maybe there's also some love thoughts too, some, some flavors of gratitude, hope, potential. Uh, maybe there's some neutral thoughts. So fear, neutral love. Maybe there's some thoughts that are like, that's not necessarily a bad thought or um, a fearful thought or negative. And so then the next stage, and meanwhile, while you're doing that, you might be feeling stuff in the body. Oftentimes discomfort comes with physical sensation, but we're going to hold that in the background. We're not focusing on that. We're just focusing on the thinking space right now. And we call that like holding the other sense gates in background equanimity, meaning we're not pushing it away. We just, we are allowing it to happen, but it's not our point of focus. And then the next stage is then you would move into your body. So you would start to investigate the body and now you're in the feel space. So you'd use the label feel to indicate that that's where your attention is going. And you just, you explore the contours. What's, what's the size, what's the volume of, of the thing you're feeling in your body? Where is it located? What's the temperature? Is it hot, cold, and somewhere in between? Is it undulating, pixelated? Is it pulsing? Is it feeling like vibratory flow? You're now investigating that and you're holding other sense experiences in the background. As you do this, what we're doing is we're dissecting the experience of uncertainty uh, and just focusing on one sense gate at a time. The reason why that can help create space and relieve anxiety in the present moment is because when we dissect it, we're, we're, and we lean in, we're processing the emotion. If, if we're caught inside of it, and I call it a coagulation of the three sense gates, when we're caught inside of anxiety or distress, it feels big, it feels overwhelming, and it builds on itself. And it, feel, and it feels like it's taking over us, and we want to retreat. But when we bite off small chunks, we learn how to actually be with our experience, which actually diffuses its intensity, allows it to process faster, and creates a new relationship. We're creating a relationship that's adaptive with discomfort, which is actually really important. You know, as a recovering addict, like, or I'm a recovering addict, so I'll speak for myself, craving is very uncomfortable. And if you actually lean into them, if you actually experience craving when it arises and really process it, looking at the contours, not the content, if you really just sit with it, you just, you can actually watch its vibration, watch its flow, and then watch it dissolve and disappear. And then you, what you, the huge insight we get from this work is that we realize all sensations come and go. They pass. They're not fixed. They're not permanent. A craving will come and pass. And if we can actually just stay with it and not react in the moment and try to figure out how to make it go away, well, then we actually have a chance to abstain from using that substance, but we have to learn how to be with it. The way, the way that the other side is through. That's the big message. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's great. Cause that, that sort of dovetails in so many other things. I mean, what I'm hearing is, um, first is, uh, attention, right. Sort of the skill of like paying attention, right. So like, what is it, right? The second one, which is a little thick question, when you say like flavors, I'm like, okay, so which feeling is the flavor of chocolate? 
<laughs> which feeling is, is sushi <laughs> the flavors right um that's a joke but like you know i, I feel like every time I, we think we think of that um uh when we're observing something we become less attached to what it is that we're observing right uh right in, exactly in, in in many spiritual traditions right when we name something when we observe something we have dominion over it Right? And we are able to then disassociate ourselves in a good way from what it is that we're feeling. Right? And that allows us mm-hmm. a certain uh, way to, to dissipate it. Because as soon as you, uh, at least for me, I think as soon as I observe anxiety, I stop being anxious. As soon as I understand that I'm being anxious, I'm able to not be anxious. Because then it's not me, it's what I'm feeling. Right? There's a certain sort of like uh, uh, interesting sort of uh, observer, observee kind of a thing happening, um, which, which is mm-hmm. interesting because um, in Proverbs, there's a, there's a verse that says that uh, a, a worry in a man's heart, um, he, the Hebrew word is yesichena, um, which is interesting. Uh, dif- different people translate different ways, but one of the ways that it means to me is to have conversation. And for me, it's to have conversation with it. If anxiety is a player in your life, if fear, if mystery, if love, whatever things that sort of maybe triggering you is, is a player in your heart, can you have a conversation with it? Right? You say labels, you can say flavors, right? right? But then it becomes a, a dialectic thing, right? It be, it's, not stump, it's not something that's sort of like um, you have no control over, right? You're talking about coagulation, so like, uh, uh, sort of like overwhelming, but you can converse with it. You can ask what it wants. You can ask. I mean, I know it sounds a little kind of woo woo, but like you can actually converse with the things in you that says like, okay, why is this here? Right. Um, interestingly enough, we used to say like when I don't get back aches very pretty much very often, although lately it's a little bit more with all this sitting with zooming. But like I know that when I get a backache, that means I'm stressed. So I almost welcome the backache when it comes to like, oh, you're, you're reminding me of something that I need to pay attention to, right? And it stops being something like, oh, shit, like, oh, you know, I need to do something. And it starts being something a little more interesting. Um, uh, I, I, I pulled the page from, uh, from the text uh, to sort of study with you, which I think sort of kind of uh, is really kind of where, where this is, uh, interestingly, mm-hmm. um, which is from, from the Talmud. Right. And um, it's it's a very interesting part of uh, of what the Talmud sort of studies um, because it allows us to look at our day through a slightly different um, sort of slightly different, um, I guess, sort of behavioral model is is the best way to sort of to, to talk about it. That is sort of when you are waking up. So. So it comes from Brachot, right? And the first part I'll just read, which is a prayer, because I want to sort of weave it into it. But like it says, when one awakes, he recites, my God, the soul you have placed within me is pure. You formed it within me. You breathed it into me and you guard it while it is within me. One day you will take it from me and restore it, it within me in the time to come. As long as the soul is within me, I thank you. Or Lord, my God, and God of my ancestors, Master of all worlds, Lord of all souls, blessed are you, or Lord, who restores soul to a lifeless body. Right? Well, I want to talk about gratitude in a second thing, but but what I really brought is this um, interesting uh, prayer that sort of that 
now we just say the prayer. Um, but when the Talmud talks about when they kind of wrote the prayer, this is how they meant it to be. And everybody who's had a traditional background will recognize the prayer. Anybody who prays Jewish prayer will recognize the prayer. It's called the Kot HaShachar, the morning blessings. Upon hearing the sound of the rooster, one should recite, Blessed person so-and-so, who gave the heart, the Sechvi, understanding to distinguish between day and night. Upon opening his eyes, one should recite, Blessed, who gave sight to the blind. Upon sitting up straight, one should recite, Blessed, who sets captives free. Upon dressing, one should recite, Blessed, who clothes the naked as they would sleep unclothed. Upon the standing up straight, one should recite, Blessed, who raised those bowed down. Upon descending from one's bed to the ground, one should recite, Blessed, who spreads the earth above the water. Upon waking, one should recite, Blessed, who makes firm steps of man. Upon putting on his shoes, one should recite, Blessed, who has pivoted, oh, sorry, who has provided me with all I need. Upon putting on his belt, one should recite, Blessed, who girds Israel with strength. And upon spreading a shawl upon his head, one should recite, Blessed, who crowns Israel with glory. Mm. What, I, what I, I like about this, and what is interesting, and, I, and you know, I, I, I'd be interested to hear what you think, is uh, that then blessings had to do with... Uh, with what you're going through right it's not just a blessing you say like mm -hmm. when you when you rise you say this when you put your foot on the ground you say this like that everything was about the intentionality of what we do and the intention attention we pay attention to something and then the mm -hmm. blessing both in terms of gratitude but in terms of awareness for me it's really a lot about awareness right mindfulness the ability to be like mm -hmm. oh Right. Do you have any thoughts? Any? Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me, what you said. And also for me, it kind of seems like an act of giving gratitude and reverence to all aspects of the human experience, because we can be grateful for what seems to be going well in our lives. But can we also be grateful for challenge when it's arising? And can we be grateful for uh yeah, for all the flavors of human experience, because it, whether we're in a great moment of, in our lives or we're in challenge, we are actually in the process of evolving our humanity. Everything that we experience and receive from, you know, from a sense experience, from like within our soul, from if it's, if we believe that it's being given to us by this higher power. We can come to really be grateful for it because it's it's helping us transform and grow and learn. Every moment is a, that we experience, regardless of its quality, is a moment to refine our our stone. And and in the mindfulness paradigm of like unified mindfulness, everything that happens to us, pain, pleasure, everything in between, is a moment to practice and to cultivate concentration, clarity, and equanimity. That's why in the system, when pain arises, what you said, when you have pain in your back, it's actually not a bad thing. It's indic indicative of what your next aligned action is or what is happening in your body, and that's good. The same with, like, when I have physical pain, I, it's an opportunity to increase my equanimity even more because 
if I pay attention to it in an, a mindfulness capacity, I will just transform my relationship with that pain and develop more resilience. I become better by, by leaning into the pain. And that's, I mean, we can understand that like through, if you're a recovering addict, if you're going through struggle during this pandemic, these are all, these are all moments for us to practice refining our soul and our stone. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, for recovery, I think it's one of the key elements to stop being afraid of what we feel and stop being afraid of what we're going through. Um, right? The big book, uh, in a way, a little different way, calls it right. Sort of one of my favorite things. I keep talking about it. Right? Turning your, your liabilities into your assets. Right? I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think a lot of addicts are highly, highly, highly sensitive people. I think perhaps even more sensitive people than most. I think they just feel a lot more, they observe a lot more, and that um, that pain. Um, I often talk that I think a lot of addicts um, originally see the the world for the majesty that it has, for the magic that it has, but they experience the world for what it is, which is pretty shitty. And that separation, that distance between those two, creates such a deep hole in them. Such a such a, a a pain of potentiality versus what's happening that they can't they they have to um, right almost like put uh, right earmuffs on your ear when there's the noise is too much so the emotional spiritual noise of the world is too much and they have to drown it somehow and I think a lot of it comes you know with 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 sex and drugs and alcohol and 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 you know all sorts of other maladaptive behaviors which I also think why so many um, artists and musicians are addicts in the same way so that creativity mm. um so so in that sense um that particular pain is something we have to start listening to it, we have to sort of right we can't ignore it um as you said right so sort of going through mm. listening to it and not um trying to squash it as much as trying to see like what can it teach me right what is it what is it teaching me mm. Um, yeah. How would you begin? Like, what advice would you give to like a uh, a beginner, somebody who's like, "Oh, this mindfulness sounds interesting." Like, what's the first thing you do, other than, of course, uh, email you, call you, right? So you have uh, this phenomenal mm. sort of uh, right online uh, coaching, sort of a, right. You have an online program that sort of helps people, right? So, so I do right. So that's one thing you can definitely so do, I, right? Just right, right. Uh, mindfulness nest. Yeah. Right? Uh, well. I think the first piece is if someone is feeling curious about mindfulness and uh, that I would say follow the curiosity because that's what I did early on. And actually I could recommend like what I did early on, which is I, I first just, I discovered it by sitting in Sangha in community and other people introduced me to the power of silence. And that's when I fell in love with silence. And interestingly enough, I came through uh, the Quaker community, which you're probably familiar with Quakers. And uh, yes, so my daughter goes I to Quaker school. Okay, yeah. So I, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a Quaker, but I sit with Quakers sometimes, and I go to Quaker meetings. It, if I were to say there is a spirituality that I would, a spiritual community that I'm a part of, one of them would be Quakers because I so value the way they perceive your relationship with higher power. But 
I did discover silence through the Quaker community and through my friend Elena, actually. And what I can say is like, first, like, if you're curious, explore what it means to sit in silence and do so with the with the support and and power of a group. And so there's so many mindfulness communities to sit with right now, like free of charge that that you can sit with virtually on Zoom and and things like that. One of which is like Recovery Dharma is a great space to to do guided meditation and also process in conversation. Um, Shuva Center obviously offers those kinds of resources too, where you get to sit. And so that's one thing is like explore drop-in classes and and sitting with a teacher who guides or just in a peer-led community. The second thing is like following some guided meditations and allowing someone to take you on a journey in your inner system, basically using mindfulness is a great way to start. And there's so many apps like Bright Mind, which is an app developed by Shinzen Young and Juliana Ray uh, of Unified Mindfulness. There's Insight Timer, there's there's 10% Happier, there's, there's other communities. And so there's a lot of like free guided. There's also like, I mean, some of my favorite teachers uh, that offer free guided meditations are Tara Brock, who's been, ha- she's been running a podcast for almost decades, I think. And I started with her. So I would sit and listen to her guided meditations by myself at home. And that was my, for the first few years of mindfulness for me, that was that was the way I experienced mindfulness and the Dharma. And that's where I was introduced to Buddhism, at least secular Buddhism. And that was so helpful. And yeah, there's Tara Brock. I also recommend George Haas of Meta Group. He has a podcast and is exceptional. There's Dave Smith to sit with too. He's got a podcast. So finding a teacher or someone to guide you through is a great way. And then and following that curiosity to start building the muscle and and being kind to yourself. Maybe you don't start with 10 minutes or more a day. Maybe you do one minute and you start to like level up and, and increase the duration and learning how to bring it into daily life. That's actually one of my specialties is I help people fall in love with mindfulness and learn how to apply it in their da- daily lives. So I help people learn how to have a, a formal practice where they sit, they have their eyes closed, you know, the things we often think about when we think about meditation. But I also, I also offer people ways to, to practice uh, in daily life while they're cleaning the house, while they're taking a shower, while they're at work, while they're in a meeting, right before they get on stage to talk to 500 people. Like these are the moments where we can actually practice mindfulness and diffuse what's happening and transform what's happening in the present moment so that we can be our most aligned and skilled selves. And so I, I could share a little bit about like some of the things I'm offering if that. Yeah, is yeah, that, that'd be great. I mean, just before that, but I would say like I yeah. that approach um, I like a lot. I mean, one is I love teachers. Also, if you listen to this podcast, you're well on your way into mindfulness. But um, um, but I think that um what you're touching on for for beginners is silence is a huge uh, thing for me uh, as well, um, and and the ability to sit in silence is is a lot harder than what most people think. Uh, right? There's the extreme versions of this, right? So vipassana and stuff, which I've also done, and you know, it was pure torture. But um, 
Uh, for some for some people, it's really great. Um, although I did learn a lot from it, so I shouldn't I shouldn't knock it. But um, the uh, the silence part of of sa- staying silent, being silent, seeing what it is. Um, you you mentioned uh, community, which of course we always talk about community being such a, a a remedy and such a source of strength for so many of life's elements, and not just sort of recovery, which really depends on it, but a lot of other things. Um, so so yes, t- tell us tell us more. And I also want us to like plant a question because like I, I um, when or c- can you tell me maybe a, a, a time that you found mindfulness or whatever like the most surprising that all of a sudden you were like what what is this sort of like that something that is kind of like you didn't expect um and on on maybe on a daily basis um so yeah so more more on how to what you offering and uh and tell me a little bit about the surprising elements of mindfulness for yourself oh i have a story but i'm not sure if it's a (laughs) <laughs> if you're not sure it right, definitely I'll... is i mean like i feel like that's a rule of thumb if you're not sure if it's a story I'll you should share. tell you should definitely tell the story okay so this is the first time i really tasted equanimity and this is a testament to we can talk about mindfulness and that's important but the the best way to experience mindfulness in your life is to practice <laughs> so because when I say the word equanimity, what the hell does that mean? Who the fuck knows, right? Like it's 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 a word that evades us the second you say it. Right. And but when you experience it, it's like the coolest thing. It's it's something that keeps me on the path, like for sure. And so okay, I'll so I'll share this. So after my first ten uh, day retreat in 2017, right before that retreat, I. I ended a relationship and it was like a year and a half relationship. We lived together. And this is like days before I go 10 days to sit in silence with myself. So it was kind of like, okay, that's like ridiculous. Um, And, and leaving this relationship was really hard for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons for me was like, I have attachment damage. So, and, uh, from that perspective, like attachment um, theory is kind of around how do I orient toward myself and toward other people, essentially. And so my attachment style in re- in in intimate relationship or romantic relationship is a flavor of non-secure. <laughs> and so leaving that relationship was really hard because I had never actually passed through abandonment terror before. And that's a phrase that we use to understand an experience with with anxious, preoccupied attachment style. And so it feels awful. And so I had to actually walk through that for the first time in my life and learn how to set boundaries. Never did that before. This is like maybe a few years into recovery, addiction recovery. So this was a big moment for me. And then I go on this retreat. And so I sit 10 days. It's, uh, you know, a unified, it's a Shinzen Young retreat and I process the breakup, uh, a lot of other things unfold, amazing experience. And then I get back and I feel very different. Like I've clearly, something has been cultivated in me. My, 
my sense gates were extremely porous and open and full. Like everything was beautiful and magical. And my equanimity levels were really high. And so I, I actually was like, let me reconnect with my ex after the retreat. And so we, we get on the phone and I asked, um, one of those questions, you know, when you ask a question and you don't want to know the answer, but you're asking because you want to induce pain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I did that. I was like, I'm going to ask a question that's going to be triggering for me. And I just want to test like how available I am to receive that. <laughs> and and right. so I asked like. Right, like tell if you could change one thing about me, like why would that be? Like why it's one of those like, oh, I, this I, is not, this like, is not okay. Yeah, go on. Where did I screw up? In, right, in exactly, our exactly. Like, was it my fault? Was it my fault? I want to take responsibility. Was it my fault? I still like to ask questions like that, but uh, wait. So you asked a question, yes, and I asked. I didn't ask that question. I asked, "Have you? Did you sleep with anyone between now and then, oh, or between yeah. like?" And so for me, that would have been, um, that's like, I knew that would trigger like pain and, um, abandonment and sorrow and <laughs> re feelings of rejection, all sorts of stuff. I was like, Oh, this is going to feel bad. And he said, no. And then he said, actually, yes. And when he said, yes, I thought, um, I could see pain. Like I had, I had awareness. I saw pain in my body arising, but there was no, it didn't feel personal at all. I was just watching it. There was actually no, like, it, it was almost like I wasn't experiencing it. I could just see like, oh, like pain in my chest. And I was like, oh, wow, interesting. And I was able to receive his truth and not judge him, not push it away, not say anything reactive. I was just able to be like, well, yeah, of course you slept with someone else. Like we're not dating anymore. And in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, that's equanimity. And I was able to fully receive him and not react. I was able to respond from a place of like, you know, rationality and like as if we were just peers or friends. That was transformative. After that, I was like, Oh, I need to go on retreat one to two times a year. I have a daily practice. Like it was seriously that, that ability to be with that information in that moment and not have some emotional trigger overwhelm my system. And then me say regrettable things. It was unbelievable. I was like, this is, I mean, this is the answer for me. This is like my path now because I need, I need that in order to, be with my life fully and accept other human beings just as they are. It, it helped. It was a moment where I had like a huge insight around the byproducts, the benefits of the practice. Uh, that's that's a good story. I also <laughs> would say that if, if your partner is listening at the moment, um, be most <laughs> most fearful just before a retreat. <laughs> like like if she's going to like <laughs> right. Uh, no, I mean, I, that's, that's, a, that's a great story, right? So sort of in, in, in vernacular terms, we would be like, no, nah, you were done. I mean, that's it, right? You were done with this sort of, right? And when you're done, you, right. you're able to, de to detach, to de detach more easily, um, which, which I think is, is, um, again, so it ties into everything we're talking about because, um, mindfulness or, or, 
the observing of mindfulness, if you will, right, is not just right. That, a little bit how we started, right, is not just uh, a practice of of kind of meditation, you know, all the thing, but also allows us to, um, I guess, uh, allows us to understand ourselves better, not to fight anxiety or fight something else or even deal with what we're going through but just to be able to kind of close chapters, right? It's able to, a little bit like back mm -hmm. to the text, right? So like to say like, okay, I'm putting my shoe on now. This is my, this is the mindful moment. And, and once it's done, then I can mm -hmm. move on to the next thing, right? It sort of kind of parses out many parts of our day to day, um, which I always think is also part of, of mindfulness, that it's not all this, you said like this coagulation again, right? So like that it starts being parsed. In Judaism, again, we have this, this beautiful thing of these, of the blessings. And it's almost right. It's 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 a little bit OCD, right? It's a little bit. It, it's over. It's like it's a very an anxious, um, right? Sort of part of the thing. Would I, I feel like sometimes being Jewish is being anxious for all sorts of different reasons, right? Where I think mm -hmm. perhaps we give this is our gift to the world, anxiety. Um, but <laughs> um, but I these blessings. They're sort of like when you see a spider's web, there's a blessing. When you see a a rainbow, there's a blessing. When you see a beautiful person, there's a blessing. An ugly person, there's a blessing. When you see 10,000 people, there's a blessing. The ocean for the first time, there's a blessing. First fruit, I mean, there's literally a blessing for everything. Like first time you wear a piece of clothing. And um, I, I remember as a kid thinking like, just like that, like, oh, oh, enough already. Like, okay, I can't breathe without, you know, like I walk, there's a blessing. Like what's it? the blessing for the corner, the blessing, right? There's a blessing before you go to the bathroom. There's a blessing after the bathroom. There's a blessing before the food and after the food. Um, but I think that when you look at it through what you were just describing and, and, and what we're talking about, it allows us to parse out the day in ways of being aware, being mindful, um, and constantly be in this, um, in this tension, right? Sort of, um, there is a uh, there is a there's a great quote from uh, Viktor Frankl for Man's Search for Meaning, which is he's he's uh, right the amazing author, amazing book. You people who listen to this, if you haven't read the book, stop the podcast, go read the book. I mean, don't stop the podcast, finish the podcast, then read the book. But you have to read this book um, where he says like between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our responses lies our growth and our freedom, right? That sort of that for me, perhaps more than anything, sort of really gives a, a strong, um, as you said, flavor to mm -hmm. how we interact with ourselves and with others. Because I think we didn't talk about it so much uh, in general, but like when you understand yourself a little bit better, you understand other people a little bit better, and you are less likely to judge them because you have more compassion because you know what they're going through, right? Which is really the human condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like what, yeah, that quote, I, I love that quote from him because it points to what you cultivate. You, you cultivate that capacity to pause when you practice mindfulness. It allows reaction versus response. You can have a craving as an addict but you don't need to react from that place. You don't have to take, you don't have to listen to it, what it's telling you. You can just look at it and then you can be with it and then discern what's my next right action. And that's, I think that's what he's saying in a lot of ways yes. is like, yes. can you learn how to take back the power in this moment and have experiences and then respond from an aligned place? Yes. And, and I think for somebody like him, right, who was a Holocaust survivor, right, uh, who was in the camps, 
we were talking before about not just that, how do you recognize that space between sort of the stimulus and, and your response is I think part of the mindfulness and the blessings as well. That is sort of that, right? Um, just because I'm hungry doesn't mean I have to eat immediately. Just because I have the craving doesn't mean I have to sort of drink immediately. And when I do, right, and we talk about day full, like day-to-day sort of hits, right? Um, I, I often tell clients uh, when they first start working with me I, that, journaling for me is a huge thing writing is a huge thing for them right so to to be aware and mindful and um and i have a whole thing about what to write in each moment with there's a whole sheet that i prepared uh one day maps i'll share it on the podcast as well um but when you're going to sit down and eat right uh victorian says like you have to chew a hundred times right but like do you really taste the food right if you stop your life Mm. right now if whatever it is you stop if I give you a silence, you put you put this podcast on a pause. Can you really be aware of what you're hearing? Right? Like you have to listen to the silence, right? Or listen to the noise or listen to your to the taste buds of what how does that taste like? Does it taste like something else? Right? Um, that what are you smelling? Right? There's there's a lot of moments sort of that instead of letting it hit you, like, oh, I smell jasmine, it must be whatever, spring, to say, okay, every time I go out. Take a pause, smell, what are you smelling, right? So to try and every day, right, as you're doing the dishes, right, to feel the soap, right? How does clean feel on your hands? How does not clean feel on your hands? Um, uh, in the shower, like stuff like that, that sort of, again, can trigger, right, the that moment between the stimulus and the response. Because I think a lot of us just don't even know that there is a, a, a space in there and we're trying to sort of create this bigger buffer, this bigger space. And I think, again, mindfulness can really help with that. Oh, yeah. And what you said, the blessings before everything is actually to me, it just seems like a way of applying attention in a in the context of reverence. You are you are in reverence of these subtle, seemingly insignificant moments of life that when when I, I mean, my partner and I actually ever since quarantine, we started praying before every meal together. So we pray out loud before our meals. And what it does is, is it allows us to really anchor in gratitude into what we're about to consume, where it came from, what's the intention we want to bring, what are we grateful for today? And it happens in a few seconds, but it sets the stage for like really being with our experience and not taking it for granted because something that we can learn from practicing mindfulness is to learn that every moment is impermanent and every moment is unique and that nothing is continuous. Identity is not continuous. Um, moments come and go and they do not come back. So if we can be with every moment fully, we are living a more full life. We have more access to life. And even if it, you're fully in pain, when you have full access to it, you actually feel more fulfillment and more um, reverence and you have more satisfaction in life. That's we, we don't have satisfaction when we apply partial attention to whatever's happening before us. So the blessings are beautiful because it allows you to really commit to a full attention to the activity at hand. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny, a friend, uh, a friend and our colleagues sort of wrote the blessing for putting on a face mask to put more attentionalities, which I thought was cool. But nice. yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you. Sort of the intentionalities is great and 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 to be aware sort of helps us sort of to to deal with everything we have um so we're about we're about to sort of to finish but you know um 
I think for a lot of people, at least for me, so like starting is sometimes hard, and and I think sort of like uh, uh, trying to find an equanimity is is difficult. I I always uh, say the same thing. Same thing. I read a long time ago about the school in Chicago that when uh, uh, they had, had to give grades of pass and fail, instead of fail, the is was the grade was either pass or not yet, and um, and that right sort of that anticipation of not yet. Um, for me, is again one of the big the big keys of everything to to allow things to to have time, right? To not expect everything at the right at, at this particular moment, and to allow ourselves to sort of like uh, breathe into it, right? Have more mindfulness around it. Um, so so yeah. Um, any last last words, last thoughts? Um, I just encourage people to explore what's possible with mindfulness and especially during this time but like committing to these tools and learning how to be with yourself and be in in wakeful awareness is such an amazing way to move through the world not just for yourself but it's a gift to other people and when we do practice mindfulness I believe we um, we are being of significant service and Shinzen talks about subtle is significant oftentimes when we notice the byproducts of the practice. And I I would say toward that, like being of service to other people just by being mindful is a significant uh, way to be in the world. It's a significant way to support other people. And one other thing I'd love to share is that uh, something I'm offering that's completely free is a five-part series. It's called Navigating the Shift. And if you go to the mindfulness.co forward slash navigate, you can just sign up for free. You just put in your name and email and you'll get an email from me over five days where I basically, I put together this series about how to approach anxiety, how to approach crisis this time, this time we're in a pandemic from a mindfulness and mindset approach. And it was really born out of uh, my experience during the pandemic. In March, my partner got really sick. And while he didn't test positive for COVID-19, it very much seemed like a COVID-19 experience, like 14 days of what I would say was like horrific, (laughs) horrific health crisis. And he was eventually hospitalized. And so he and I both learned so much about, about life, about what's really meaningful, about how to actually surf crisis using mindfulness, because we're both practitioners of the of mindfulness. And so I put together this series right after because I was like, how can I help people right now kind of really contend with this crisis, really learn how to be in their lives and deal with what's arising, even especially if it's intense like that. But we're all experiencing flavors of discomfort right now as the whole world is in transition. So I'd love to offer that series to your listeners. And it's it's an amazing resource. Tons of people have gone through it already. And I'm just so grateful to be able to share that. And, and we are grateful for you to share that. So, so yeah, so, so uh, absolutely. I think everybody should def- definitely do it. Um, uh, if people want to find you on Instagram or any social media, where, where will they find you? So I'm, I'm most active on Instagram and my handle is at Jess.Lipman. And I share a lot of guided meditations on there, video talks, and just tons of value around uh, mindfulness and how you can bring it into your daily life. 
Great, great. So you can find uh, Jess on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram as well. Uh, Chuva Center, of course, or Not Your Rabbi, which is my personal one. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, EGLGM. Um, and there's, of course, Tattoos and Torah, our podcast. So feel free to uh, text us, DM us, email us if you have questions. If you have further questions, um, uh, let us know what you feel and what you think. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and build this community even more. Thank you again for joining us for Tattoos and Torah. You know how to find us. Uh, We will see you next week. Uh, I hope everybody is safe and healthy um, and that your loved ones are safe and healthy as well. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Jessica. This was really amazing. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. This was an honor.